And hello and welcome to this week's edition of Novak Now. I'm Jake Novak here on the Nachum Siegel Network. And, oh my goodness, what a week it has been. So much to comment on and so much to learn from. Uh, not just to point out the highlights of the week, a very news-filled week for, for Americans and for Jewish Americans and for Jews around the world, because it certainly has been an incredibly eventful time just in the last few days. But there's a lot to learn from these incidents other than just to be aghast at some of the bad news, happy at some of the good news. Uh, it's really a time to be circumspect. It's really a time to, to learn from some of this. And I hope I can add to some of the learning experience because it's very important that we, that we learn from, from what's happened in the last uh, few days because it really has been something else. Um, I could go in chronological order, but as you know, the nature of this program, this Novak Now program, which runs a half hour every week, sometimes we, we tend to run out of time towards the end. So I want to I start with the most important development of the week, I think, for, for all of us, and certainly for our friends in, in Europe, our, our, our Jewish brothers and sisters in Europe, and particularly in Great Britain, the utter and complete and clear defeat of the Labour Party, the Labour Party led by Jeremy Corbyn, is such a positive development for the Jewish community, first off in Great Britain, but I think really in the whole world and certainly in Europe. Jeremy Corbyn, you know, we throw around the words anti-Semite and anti-Israel sometimes, and very often it's true but the degrees of which someone is an anti-Semite, the degrees of which that person may or may not be generally dangerous in, in a widespread way, can sometimes be exaggerated. And you can excuse people, especially our fellow Jews, when they encounter a real anti-Semite and decide to make it seem like this is the worst possible thing in the world. And it is a very terrible thing. But thankfully, even when we're dealing with someone who could be violent – let's say an individual white supremacist or an individual anti-Semitic Muslim terrorist or an anti-Semitic uh, other person other than a white supremacist in the United States or elsewhere around the world, that person could become deadly and that could be very serious and there's nothing uh, to sneeze at there. But when you're dealing with someone who is the leader of one of the major political parties in, in, in one of the oldest and most important democracies in the world, which is Great Britain... And to see this person with an incredibly long record, in fact, I don't even want to call it a record when we talk about Jeremy Corbyn. Really, the, the better term is rap sheet. I mean, the man has done countless, countless, and countless things that are anti-Semitic, that are virulently anti-Israel, that are supportive of terrorists. And for him to have even gotten close to the leadership of the Labour Party is astonishing in and of itself, and it's been going on, obviously, you know, it's been the leader of the Labour Party for quite a few years now. It's not just the last couple of years. And it, it's been, you know, more than four years that he's been the leader of the Labour Party, and it's been just incredibly frightening for the Jews of Great Britain to see somebody like this who is so clearly hostile to them, so clearly hostile to not only the state of Israel, but the, the, the importance of Holocaust memorials, I mean, the man has a very long rap sheet, and for him to have been defeated this utterly. And more importantly, my, my friends, it's important to remember that labor lost, you know, look, Britain is a, is a parliamentary democracy. So 
the voters, even though, of course, they'll be aware of the personalities that lead the party and aware that if they vote for a particular party, that leader of the party will, will likely become prime minister if that party wins. But parliamentary democracies are a little bit more about party voting than you think. Uh, if you're an American who's been maybe voting for the same party every year in every election. But even you, let's say you're someone who's always voted for the Democratic Party or always voted for the Republican Party. If you're an American voter, even if you've always been on one party's side, you probably take a good measure of the man or woman who's running for president at the top of that ticket, more so than typically a parliamentary democracy voter would. But in this case, folks, in this election that just took place in Great Britain, it was clear both from the exit polls and from everything that was going into the election in the, in, the, in, the, in the way that it was covered and the way that we were hearing about it going into the election, that the voters in Great Britain were taking a tremendous extra measure of Jer- Jeremy Corbyn personally, more so than you usually see in a parliamentary democracy, more so than you usually see in Great Britain. Remember, this is a country that has a long history of this, of, of deciding that policy sometimes plays a bigger role than personality. So, for example, after Winston Churchill helped really save the UK, they, had, they, they knew they needed him to become the leader as the beginning of, of World War II was not going well for Great Britain. And they turned to, to Sir Winston. They, they, they turned to Winston Churchill to be the leader of the country. And he puts them at a victory over, the, over Nazi Germany and Europe. And no sooner does that happen as, he's, as the, his party is voted out. The people voted, felt like they wanted a different party now, that Winston had, Churchill had done his job. And unlike what you might have seen in the United States, where someone who had really carried the, the, the country through such a, a triumph would be reelected, they immediately made a change. So they certainly felt stronger in favor of Winston Churchill personally than Clement Attlee, the man who took over from the Labor Party after Winston Churchill's conservative party was defeated in 1945. But that wasn't as important to them. So my point here is that personality doesn't always win it in, the, in an election in places like Great Britain like it does here. I think it's a much bigger, and I, I, I would say I know it's a much bigger factor here in the United States. So for Jeremy Corbyn's personality, the negative feelings that Britons had about him to play such a big role in this election, and it did, really says a lot. And... Um, you know, kudos to the British people. They, they, they clearly did not want somebody like Jeremy Corbyn. I think that anti-Semitism in Britain is much greater and more pervasive. You know, it's a terrible combination. There are, there are three main sources of anti-Semitism that come in Great Britain that we don't necessarily have here in the United States. There is a powerful, upper-crust, aristocratic form of anti-Semitism that still is uh, embodied in some of the aristocracy, which they really have there. When we say aristocracy in the United States, of course, we're just using it as a, as a, as a nickname. It's not a real aristocracy. Well, in Great Britain, they still have an aristocracy. There's a tremendous amount of anti-Semitism that's coming from the very large Muslim population in Great Britain. And then there is a decent amount of anti-Semitism from the very lower income working class Protestants in Great Britain. And that's always been there. But despite all that, it was very, very clear that the very overt anti-Semitism that Jeremy Corbyn had shown throughout his career, even before he was a Labour Party leader, in fact, a lot more before he was a Labour Party leader, 
uh, it, it helped tip the scales. I think the biggest reason why th- that he lost was not anti-Semitism, but I think it really helped tip the scales. I mean, I think we would be talking about a smaller conservative party majority, a smaller majority for Prime Minister Boris Johnson to be working with. If it weren't for the fact that Corbyn's blatant anti-Semitism started to grab more headlines in the weeks before the election than even Brexit, if you can believe it. You know, I have um, reporter friends and other friends in Great Britain who were who were emailing me the headline, the the front pages of the tabloid newspapers in Britain, which of course are a real are a real um, part of the culture in Great Britain. I mean, we only have something like that here in New York. The rest of the United States doesn't have a tabloid newspaper culture like Great Britain does, even by a long shot. In Great Britain, the tabloid newspapers have a tremendous amount of influence over the country, a tremendous amount of visibility. And they were reporting almost as regularly about the anti-Semitic actions and recriminations and other things connected to Jeremy Corbyn just as much as they were about Brexit in the weeks leading up to the election. So that was astounding. And here's what I think about that, because, again, I don't think that Britain's Jew, the, Britain Jewish, the British Jewish population is tiny. There's no way, even if they voted 100% as a bloc, that they would have swung this election. Um, I think that sympathy for Judaism and Israel causes throughout Great Britain is also not very strong. But here, here's what I do think, and I think this is an important thing to remember. The left-wing parties, both in the United States and in, and in Europe, use the racism accusation as basically their most importantly and most important and most consistent weapon. They like to smear people as racist. In fact, they're desperate to do so. They, they, it, it's a, a tremendous part of their MO. And if you don't believe me, just take a look at the way the, the left-wing news media and left-wing folks on social media decided to smear those cadets, the Army cadets at the Army-Navy game, uh, this past weekend, who were doing something with their fingers and hands, and they decided to accuse them of flashing a white power, a power, a power sign, which is outrageous. It's ridiculous. They were playing another kind of game. It had nothing to do with white power. But, and they've done this before. They've done this before with, with anybody that they, that they want to smear. And it, it, it's outrageous to smear our cadets, to smear our, our, our soldiers like this uh, with no evidence, and to just do it, and, and they don't care, is, is beyond the pale. I can get into more about the outrageousness of it all and, and the injustice of it all, but it's just I'm using it right now just as an example of how important the use of racism as something that they can accuse others of is a huge part of the arsenal of the left. And for Jeremy Corbyn himself, a leader of the leftist party in Great Britain, to be accused of a form of racism, which of course anti-Semitism is, to be accused of that kind of cultural hate and all that, even if it only under, even if it only was a cause celeb for a small percentage of great Br- people in Great Britain, that really undermined the weapon that the left likes to use. If you, if 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 a leader of a left wing party or a nominee for president for the Democratic Party in the United States has a credible accusation of racism against him or her, that's the end of that guy or her or, or gal. That's the end of them. Because if they can't use racism as a bludgeon easily against all their opponents and all their critics or all their supposed enemies, then they don't work. And that is why Jeremy Corbyn, I think, became even more toxic and even more of a long shot to win. And that's why the Labor Party lost uh, the, the most seats that they've ever lost in an election in many, many decades. And, and, and thank goodness for it. It was really a, a fantastic result of that election. 
doesn't mean that anti-Semitism is going to go away in Great Britain. In fact, there are going to be some ultra-leftists who are now going to blame the Jews for this result, for them losing the election. And uh, I think Great Britain's Jews are still under much more physical threat than, than Jews in almost any other diaspora country, with the exception of you know, the few Jews left in Iran or the few Jew, who Jews that might be left in Syria or, or those kinds of places. But for, a, for Jews living in, a de, in democratic countries around the world, I think the Jews in Great Britain are in some you know, pretty, big, pretty big danger still. But the worst has really been, has been avoided because I, I didn't think that Jeremy Corbyn and the Labor Party had a great chance to win this election. I would have given them a 30% chance at best. But not only have they lost, but now Corbyn is going to have to step down. So it's possible that he could be replaced by someone worse, but that's going to be hard. And I think that you would think that the Labor Party establishment will realize that people like him and people with his types of thinking have got to be avoided at least next time. And so we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. But really, one of the worst people that they could have chosen has been ousted. Um, you can check my Twitter feed, at JakeJakeNY, if you want to go into the real long history of, of Jeremy Corbyn's anti-Semitic and anti-Israel uh, activities, which are, many of them are just beyond the pale outrageous. I'm not talking about someone who made a speech and, and for example, called Israel occupiers or, or things like that. I'm talking about someone who has organized and, and appeared at alternative Holocaust memorial rallies because he felt that the Holocaust memorials in Great Britain were focusing too much on the Jews. I'm not kidding. He's done that more than once. I'm talking about someone who, who laid a wreath either at or near the graves of the Munich terrorists and spent years denying that he was anywhere near there. Then they came up with a picture of him actually holding the wreath. So now his, his uh, statement, which is hard to refute because there's no further evidence, uh, is that he did not actually go through, the, go through with the whole wreath laying. I mean, why anyone would be, would be anywhere near their gravesite in the first place is beyond me at a ceremony to honor them. So, you know, that excuse doesn't work for me. This is someone who has called uh, as his friend and was, and, and was celebrating the release of a terrorist who helped mastermind the bombing of a, of a cafe in Jerusalem that killed uh, many people. Uh, there are just so many instances of it. And if you check my Twitter feed, especially from earlier uh, in the month of December, you'll see a number of the, of the, a list of actually 26 outrageous things that Jeremy Corbyn has done just since 2006. Um, that a very good, um, uh, reporter and writer for Camera, C-A-M-E-R-A, the, the organization that really looks into the Arab world and the, the, the Arabic press and translates what they're really saying to amongst themselves. They do, that's really their great contribution, but they've also had people who have looked into the activities of people like Jeremy Corbyn. So a, a, an important victory, and, I, and as I wrote in my column for CNBC.com, for those of you who are just listening to this as American listeners and, and maybe not as concerned about Corbyn uh, and his anti-Semitic and pro-terrorist uh, um, history, uh, there's also a lot to learn from this election and emphasis on the word learn for our presidential election here in the United States coming up in 2020. Now, the point I want to make very clearly, if you remember nothing else about what we can take from this election to learn from our election is this. Remember this sentence. British elections are more instructive than they are predictive of American elections. In other words, just because the conservatives won in Great Britain and the labor left party lost, it does not mean, oh, the Republicans are going to win in 2020, Donald Trump's going to win in 2020, because you know, that, this has been predicted. No, no, that's not really what we can say. We really can't say that for a number of reasons, not the least of which being that Boris Johnson and the conservative party in Great Britain are 
considerably more liberal than the conservative Republican wing of the, of the GOP. And Boris Johnson, despite the fact that he has a lot of his detractors in Great Britain, he has a lower disapproval rating, uh, it, clearly so, than Donald Trump has in the United States. Uh, Donald Trump has a very strong core support, uh, group of supporters that I think in their, in their, in their way, you know, they, as they say, the base for Donald Trump, I think is stronger than it is for Boris Johnson. But on the other hand, Boris Johnson's detractors are not as crazed as the detract and, and as large and as numerous as the detractors for Donald Trump. So I don't want to say it's predictive, but it is so instructive. Uh, I've already touched on some of the things that we can learn. We can learn that having a candidate who is so weak at the top of the ticket uh, no matter how weak you think your opponents are or how unpopular they think your policies are, if you have a weak candidate at the top of your ticket, even in a parliamentary democracy, but especially in, in, a, in a democracy like ours, where so many people do vote for the person and not necessarily the party or, the, or at least the policies, uh, then you're, you're in trouble. You've got to have someone who, who really, really inspires a group of strong supporters and doesn't really have a lot of people scratching in their heads about what this guy stands for. You know, I, if I'm Joe Biden and his, I, Joe Biden, and I know his can, his campaign thinks it's great that Jeremy Corbyn lost because he was so far to the left and Jeremy, Joe Biden's brand is a more moderate form of democracy. But you know what? I, I of the, of, of the democratic party, I should say, but you know what folks, it's not so much that, it's not so much that. I think it had a lot more to do with Jeremy Corbyn's personal conduct. Not only the anti-Semitism, but also here's a man with, that, with the most enduringly important issue in Great Britain over the last three, four years, being Brexit, spent the last six months before the election saying he wasn't sure what he would do, that he was going to be agnostic or, or uh, he was just going to abstain from saying whether he was for or against Brexit. I mean, are you kidding me? This was his great genius of a plan that he wouldn't say how he feels and see who would fall for it. And, you know, there's a lot of that in Joe Biden, too. You know, he, he, he's a huge flip-flopper. He's had a lot of different comments that go one way or the other. He's got a personal scandal that is finally coming to light. I mean, this entire impeachment scandal of, of, of President Trump, which to me can very easily be summarized as they're going after President Trump because he was trying to get somebody else in trouble for a tremendous crime. So they're trying to slap Donald Trump with the crime for trying to find out whether someone else committed a crime, being the Bidens and the Biden family. And yes, that would have helped his campaign, I guess. I mean, Joe Biden wasn't, isn't the nominee yet, and he isn't ahead in the polls in, in the first couple of primaries. So it's hard to say that this would win the White House for Donald Trump. But even if it did, so what? So is solving unemployment and curing cancer. That would help his, his campaign too. Does that, is that illegal? I mean, it's just, it's just a stupid argument. It's a stupid argument. So Joe Biden's got his own scandals. Joe Biden's got plenty of comments that will make him very hard to be the, the crusader against racism that he's trying to pretend to be. Remember, he made his campaign launch announcement saying the real reason he's running against Donald Trump is because Donald Trump called white supremacists and neo-Nazis very fine people, which he didn't do. Of course, if you listen to Novak now here in the Nachum Siegel Network, you know that that is not true. Donald Trump never said that. And he actually made it clear, very, very, very clear that they should be denounced. And, and repudiated totally. But of course, for the Democratic Party, who uses racism as their number one weapon, they sometimes have to make stuff up. The problem is, Joe Biden really did call pro-Confederate folks very fine people. That's on tape, too. But in this case, it isn't doctored or taken out of context. Uh, at, a, at a Senate hearing many years ago, he looked at the Confederate 
Daughters of the Confederacy organization and called them literally very fine people. It's going to be very hard for Joe Biden to be Mr. Anti-Racism Crusader when more of these kinds of videos come to light. And they will. They will. So I think that there's something to learn from that. I don't think that the Biden campaign should be dancing a jig over Jeremy Corbyn because there's a lot of Jeremy Corbyn and Joe Biden. There's a lot of flip-flopping. There's a lot of personal statements that are embarrassing. Uh, and there's a, there's, a, there's a long record of stupidity, as any long-serving member of Congress probably would have. And that's what Joe Biden has. The other thing that's really instructive is that I, I, you, you cannot run an election based on trying to play things down the middle and not being honest about things and not really trying to really crusade against something. You know, Donald Trump has, has absolutely st- has stumbled on a couple of things that people forgot about in this country. We all know that he stumbled on the illegal immigration issue. I don't know why that he thought that that was so important that that became the, the centerpiece of his original campaign announcement in June of 2015 when he came down the escalator and just a few minutes later started railing about illegal immigration. But it turned out that that was something that the base of the Republican Party still cared about, the folks who vote in the primaries. And he touched a nerve with that. And he's also touched a nerve now with this China policy where he's gotten tough with China in a way that no Republican or Democrat has even come close. Uh, so, of course, the, the phase one deal being agreed to last week, it was so funny to hear Democrats or anybody in, in government who's been in government for a long time criticize the president over that. Because even if this phase one deal is a little bit too friendly to China, and I don't think it's a little bit too friendly to China. Clearly, it's a little bit more friendly to us because it, it improves the status quo. But even if, if you think that some of that is too friendly to China, and, and I can understand that argument. I think there are parts of that argument that should be listened to. But even if you think that. Nobody who's been in government for more than a few years has any leg to stand on to criticize President Trump about this. Clearly, the, I think more and more Americans are coming to realize and wake up to the threats from China, uh, whether it's the Hong Kong protest crackdown, which has woken them up to it, or now this growing scandal of more and more of us learning about the one million or so Chinese Muslims known as the Uyghurs who are living in basically detention cities. I mean, this is something out of a dystopian science fiction novel. But it's really happening. And for American companies that help, help – tech companies that have helped China do this uh, and for China to apply to the World Bank for money to help them surveil their, their Muslim community and, and the World Bank considering it. I mean all of this is great fodder for President Trump and new issues for him to get, get, get on board with. And the Democrats are fumfering about it. They're not really talking about it all that much. And I wrote a column for CNBC.com several months ago saying this is a great issue for them to get on board with. They should get on board with it. They should stop pretending that everything Donald Trump says is wrong, that if Donald Trump says two plus two is four, that it's really five. They need to stop with that because there are some issues that he's sitting on that are, that are correct, whether you like him or not. And there are many ways uh, that the Democrats can make these issues their own or do a great job with them and still succeed with them. But right now, they're just too bullheaded with their hatred of Donald Trump to, to really pay attention to it. So... That was the biggest issue uh, of the week for me, was the, was the Corbyn loss and, and, and the Labor Party defeat in the election. The second thing was, and I don't think it was completely uh, unrelated, the second thing was, of course, President Trump's executive order to fight anti-Semitism on campus. And there were two things about it that are really noteworthy. One is, it was a great, it was, a, it, it's t- it was just a great thing that it happened, long overdue, and important that it happened because what, what's going on in college campuses right now is anti-Israel groups have long infiltrated 
some of the younger academics and certainly some of the students. And they've made this something that goes on at almost all the campuses around the country. Some kind of anti-Israel cell exists at almost every major campus in this country. You know, it's just amazing when you think of how little this really affects so many uh, American college students, but yet somehow this, this lands on all the college campuses. And, and there's reasons for it, uh, not, not only connected to anti-Semitism, but also due to the amount of money that groups that are anti-Israel in the Middle East have donated to American universities, Qatar most, uh, most notoriously, but other countries as well. So there's, there's reasons for it that go beyond just anti-Semitism. A lot of it is, is, is truly political anti-Zionist movements that have, that have a lot of money behind them from the Middle East. But for whatever reason, this executive order um, you know, is something that's been needed for a long time. And it's really great that the president signed it. And Alan Dershowitz, who was at the event as President Trump was signing it, it was the Hanukkah party at the White House uh, over, the, over the last week, saying that this was the most important thing that he had seen the American government do to address an issue on campus, to address anti-Semitism. And I have to agree with him because this is such a, such a breeding ground for anti-Semitism in this country right now. And just to briefly go over this, and I want to make this very clear to folks, because there's some people out there who I think of are, are fair-minded. I think a lot of people who are against this executive order are not fair-minded. But let's, let me address this to the small percentage of folks who are fair-minded folks who are worried that this executive order is some kind of attack on free speech. Folks, we're not talking about prosecuting and stopping someone from having an anti-Israel march, as disgusting as I think it might be, as not important as it is for, as inappropriate as I think it is for, for college campuses in America to be getting involved in that kind of an issue, for the most part. The fact is, that's not what this does. And that's not what's going on on campus. Do you understand what's going on on campuses right now, my friends? It isn't just protests or uh, signs against Israel. That, that's one thing, and as bad as it is, I, I, that's not what this executive order is going after. This is what this executive order is going after. Let me just give you one example of what these groups do. The so-called Students for Justice for Palestine and groups like them. They go and they get a list of all the students who are living in the dorms at university, and they circle all the Jewish and Jewish-sounding names. Now, notice I said Jewish and Jewish-sounding names. I didn't say the names of the Jewish kids who are in the pro-Israel groups. No, they just take a look at at the names of the kids living in the dorms and circle all the Jewish and Jewish-sounding names. And then, at 3 a.m. or 2 a.m., they go to their rooms, bash on the door, and put a little pamphlet under there saying, we are evicting you just like the Jews evicted the Palestinians, which, of course, isn't true. But that's what they're doing. Now, that's not free speech, my friends. That's harassment. And I believe, and, and my legal friends listening to this can tell me whether I'm, I'm on the mark with this, but I believe that bashing on a door and waking someone up at 2 a.m. Is also, is also assault. Okay? And those people need to be prosecuted for racist crimes. Okay? For, for hate crimes. And that's what this executive order is going to make it more easy to do. I could go into a little bit more of the details there. Of course, the other thing we heard from a very small percentage of left-wing Jews is that this was some kind of anti-Semitic plot. This delusional argument, I don't want to go too far into giving credence and time to a delusional argument because these people, I think, actually do need some help in mental health care. And I don't say that as a joke, and I don't say that as an insult. I'm saying that as a diagnosis from a layperson, just like I know someone who is mumbling on the subway is probably also, you know, and, and, and screaming and shouting and maybe pulling down their pants on the subway also needs mental health care. I don't have to be a doctor to know that. But... For those people who think it's some kind of part of an anti-Semitic plot, it's not. 
it should be it should be noted that both President Obama and President Bush, George W. Bush, promised to do a similar executive order, a, a similar actions, and never did it. So this isn't some kind of new Donald Trump plot. That's all the time I'm going to give for that. But this was an amazing week, and of course, the, the, the unfortunately, also we had the negative story of the black Israelite terrorists attacking the Jewish market in New Jersey. And thankfully, it wasn't as bad as apparently they had planned. We're learning now they may have targeted the yeshiva school next to it with many kids in there. And the two, and, sorry, the, the, the four people killed, it's, it's terrible, terrible, terrible. But thank goodness, uh, it, it wasn't worse. And there are some heroic stories coming out of that. But we need to be, again, folks, we need to be vigilant here. But I do think we're in a better place than, than our friends in, in Great Britain and Europe and certainly in the Arab countries. This is Jake Novak. This has been Novak Now on the Malcolm Siegel Network. I hope to speak to you again next week.